Lads, can you load up? Pass how many's going in one go? With ten. Two fives, okay, so first five. It's almost the last day of August 2020 and a small group of artists is getting on board a boat in Roundstone Harbour in County Galway. The organiser of the trip is Belfast artist yeah. Rosie McGurran. It's a really fine day on Roundstone Harbour. It's beautifully calm and please goodness it stays that way and everybody's very excited. They're heading out to a small island just off the coast called Inishlaken. The journey will only be maybe about 10 minutes on calm water and then we just get in and uh, get our stuff in and get painting. Everybody, when you get off the island, can you all sanitise your hands? Yeah. Please? Yes. OK. Just keep remembering. This trip is part of the Inishlaken project, which all started when Rosie McGurran was given a book for Christmas back in 1999. A friend of mine, Mary Hughes, gave me this book called Three Men on an Island by a man called James McIntyre. And the book itself recalls the summer of 1951 when James was a young artist and was invited by the older artist, Jared Dillon, to come and stay on the island and do some painting. Dear Jim, would you like a bed for a month or six weeks on Inishlaken? It's a mile off Roundstone in the Atlantic. You'll love it. Stone walls, thatched cottages, a real peasant life. Just up your street. You'll need about £15 for expenses. There's no rent as I have it for the year. Try to get over next month. Drop me a line when you're coming. Yours, Gerard. P.S. I need some colours. Flake white, yellow ochre burnt umber, bring them with you. And another artist called George Campbell, who was based in Dublin, came with them and they were there for about six weeks over that summer. In fact, I think James stayed a bit longer. Jared was living there for the full year in a little cottage and he made work, I think, in exchange for the rent of the cottage. And it was maybe some of the best work of his entire life. Reading James McIntyre's book, Three Men on an Island, Describing the summer that the three artists spent living and working on Inishlaken gave Rosie an idea. This um, thought arrived in my head saying, you must put artists back on that island. And I didn't think about the thought, the thought came. That thought led to Rosie setting up the Inishlaken project in 2001. My first idea was just to bring people over there and paint and, and see what happened. And then it kind of grew organically into a more of a residential project where artists stayed on the island and stayed in the village of Roundstone and we'd go back and forth and you had the option of staying. And then the numbers kind of increased over the years. Nothing unmanageable, but it's just been a mixture of different types of artists, of painters, performance artists, um, poets, novelists, um, sculptors, you name it, everybody's been there, you know, but it is mostly a visual arts project. So it's really um, a week where you literally just almost disconnect from the world, which used to be easier before the mobile phones came in. James McIntyre described in his book his first sight of Inishlaken Island in 1951. Inishlaken sat on the ocean a long, grey sliver of rock patched with green. 
rising in humps up to the center. There were no trees. Outlined against a pale blue sky, the empty window frames of a gaunt, roofless ruin stirred out to sea. Hard by was a ribbon of pearly sand a few hundred yards long, and massive rocks sheltering the gable ends of thatched cottages. They huddled together about the boulder-littered shoreline. Wisps of turf smoke drifted straight up into the still evening air. In August 2020, there are no wisps of turf smoke and no longer anyone living on the island year-round. Just a few holiday homes and a number of derelict cottages. Apart from that, things don't look much different as the artists involved in the Inish Lycan project arrive on the island. Oh, I feel like such a pioneer, don't you? <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. It's lovely. In previous years, the owners of the schoolhouse, which is now a gorgeous holiday home, have given permission for it to be used as the place where the artists gather for lunch and to shelter from the rain. This year, with COVID-19 restrictions in place, everyone has to stay outdoors as much as possible. And before any artistic work can be undertaken, Michael Doherty has volunteered for an important job. So I'm just going to rake it in the pile here to make a clear area so that whenever people gather outside here, there's a place we can comfortably gather. Michael is kindly raking up the donkey and sheep droppings to clear space in the grass. And while he does the housekeeping, the other artists spread out across the island, looking for the ideal spot to work. I've come over to this little beach here uh, this morning. The sun is shining and I'm just hoping to go and get some good weather this morning. It's kind of a sheltered spot here. And um, I'm going to set up my outdoor easel and just try and in some way kind of respond to the landscape that I'm looking at. This remote, uninhabited island is taking Una Seely out of her usual habitat. I'm an urban painter by nature, I'm a city person. And so for me to find a way of actually engaging with the landscape and, and, and at the same time not trying not to be too Paul Henry about it is uh, it's quite a challenge. Getting ready to paint outdoors involves quite a bit of preparation. I have one of these outdoor easels, like a box easel, Julian. You know, I think it's a 19th century design that nobody has a, a managed to improve on. I bought it in San Francisco about 25 years ago and it's been all around the world with me. It's quite challenging sometimes working with oil paint outside because clearly it doesn't mix with rain. Um, bugs are always a challenge. They you, you find out at the, at the end of the day, usually there's quite a few little flies and things stuck onto your painting. But you have to resist the temptation to pick them off at the time. You have to wait till the painting is dry. And then they will kind of, um, they will sort of migrate to the surface and then you can kind of brush them off. But these are the joys of working on plein air. Apron on. <laughs> so I look the part. And then put the paints out. Ultramarine, yellow ochre, crimson, and then 
of course, always white. To tiny white. I'm going to use a medium cold uh, liquid, which is uh, speeds up the drying time of the paint. Okay, so that's the paint's all out, and then you just need to get um, put the a bit of solvent into a jam jar. Use an odorless mineral spirit. Uh, can't don't like the smell of terps, and I'm kind of allergic to it. So that's a this is a bit less noxious. And it's 30 by 30 centimetres, you know, that's about a foot square, that canvas. Brushes got a sign of selection of uh, synthetic flats and uh, bristle brushes in different, you know, filberts, flats and rounds. A big brush for basically putting on a, you know, blocking in large areas. A couple of palette knives. I don't use a palette knife for painting with, but just for mixing the paint. And then sometimes for scraping off uh, your work. If it's not working out, you can scrape it off. So that's about it. That's the equipment, basically. And uh, that's kind of like, that's how to start a painting in <laughs> five moves. Azuna starts to apply her base coat. Back at the harbour, Michael has finished his raking and is turning his attention to getting some painting done. As I've been walking around, I've just found a, a cluster of rocks here that have some seaweed beside them that's quite luminous green. And then there's kind of like reds on the rocks and the greens of the grass and some kind of ochre colours as well. So I'm just quite interested in the composition and then making a composition from those things that I'm looking at. So uh, the colours, I'm, I'm not really decided. I mean, obviously I've got my ultramarine, so ultramarine's a kind of basic staple. I'm going to try and avoid the uh, the white as long as possible, the titanium white. I have my yellow ochre, um, and I think probably to get the luminous screen in, I'm going to have to use some quite bright yellow. So the only one that I have with me here is is a lemon yellow, but I'm sure it'll do if I mix that with a bit of the the blue. Hopefully I'll get something quite luminous, or with a touch of blue, get like a luminous green from it. And then the really strong reds, actually I have to be careful to make sure that I get those. So, um, well, this is called just gonna come down to a bit of trial and error. Uh, I don't know, I might, I might try the raw sienna with, uh, or maybe some of the burnt sienna with the, uh, the, the lemon yellow and that's that's really about as far as I've got but what I'm hoping to do is is to uh, put on a really really light base coat of maybe a few different background colors really just to get me going and use a bit of kitchen roll and pull colors out and push them and pull them around really lightly first of all and then just build up the thickness so that that's the plan anyway and my uh, easels held down with a few big stones in a bag to stop uh, it's actually very, very calm today, so don't not sure if I really even need the bag of stones to hold down the easel, but I've had too many easels fall over on me over the years, and uh, I just want to keep this one in place. So I'll see how it goes. haven't made a mark yet, so uh, fingers crossed I'll get something. This first day on the island comes as a great relief to Rosie McGurran. The trip has been a long time in the making. I really started planning initially like in 2020, literally the minute we finished in 2019. It was such a, a vintage year and it's just a year when everything went 
swimmingly and everybody got on. And not that people would be fighting or anything, but, you know, it was just a, a group of people who just got on really well and everybody brought a different energy to it. And I thought, well, we can never repeat things, but if we sort of more or less have the same core group, then we can't go far wrong. Rosie had originally planned to involve a group of over 30 people in 2020 from Ireland and from farther afield. I had a list of artists who were mostly Irish visual artists um, planned, but we had some writers from Canada and America coming and a lot of these people would be descendants of the island. It would be um, their great-grandparents had left there and they all had their tickets booked and whatever. Um, We had artists from England and, you know, different places and we started to realise that, well, I, I always talk about we, it's me. I started to realise that um, that this may not happen. We're in the middle of a global and national emergency, a pandemic, the likes of which none of us have seen before. I just realised that there was no way that we would go anywhere in June. Over the next few months, Rosie followed developments closely. We are now ready to take the first steps on a careful phase reopening of our country. Here are the five main things you should know for phase one. And as the situation improved, there was a glimmer of hope that Inishlag in 2020 might still happen. The COVID-19 crisis is not over, but the efforts and solidarity of the Irish people means that we can now move to phase three of our reopening roadmap. As we begin to return to normal life, it is more important than ever. And at the end of August, several months later than had been planned, with strict guidelines for everyone on distancing and sanitising, and with much reduced numbers, Rosie is back on Inishlaken and finally able to concentrate on some artwork. So when I when I got off the boat, I had a good look around and, and normally... When there's a bigger group of artists, I would spend a lot of time with new artists um, walking around the island and talking to them about things. Um, but this time, because everybody has been here before, and know, they know what they're doing. So this is really invaluable time for me to concentrate on something. And it's not only the atmosphere and the history of this place, I mean, which is all quite unique, um, particularly in terms of art history. It's also the, the, the challenge of the environment in front of you. So you've got the you know, the, the natural and, and the built environment all together in this tiny natural space. Um, what I'm looking at now are rugged rocks and a beach, little tiny beach and lots of stones. And then the 12 bends in the distance in the Schnee Lighthouse, the two piers of the harbour in Inishlaken and some lobster pots and ropes. My work doesn't aim to replicate this in any realistic way. I, I sort of go into a moment of, of just looking for lines and shapes that I eventually start putting putting down colours with watercolour and I work with everything. I work with felt tips, I work with pens, I work with pencils and watercolours and acrylics all on top of each other. And um, I, I aim for a composition that becomes almost abstract rather than a, a representation of things in absolute reality. Across from Rosie, on the other side of the harbour, Michael is making progress. I'm painting rocks here. So what I need to make sure is that I have this balance of the darks and lights of bits of the underpainting coming through whenever I put the kind of layers on top and an overall structure to the massing. So 
There's a big flat rock that I'm looking down at here. It forms a line right across the the picture. So, but I'm trying to make sure I get some sort of a, and I suppose this is what will evolve, some sort of a kind of counter to that, some something that crosses it in the opposite direction. So I've got a little line in a couple of places and I might connect them together to make like a counter axis across the painting. What I have to try and be sure of is that there's a, point where I could go too far and the work could suddenly, it's just literally a copy of what's there and it would read as those rocks and I want to leave it, always leave the thing in this ambiguous territory where just sitting in that space between figuration and abstraction so that's what I'm trying to do with this and it's about just knowing when to stop, so I'm not at time to stop yet, nowhere near time to stop but you know, so I just have to keep going um, and make sure I don't go too much, but make sure I don't stop too early either. Bernard has also been busy. I've been here the last few hours. Um, I, it took me a while to actually settle into what what what, what was I going to paint and. Um, you know, the first time I came here, I did the big vista of the 12 bends and the beautiful sea and all that. And the next time I came, I honed in a little bit more. Then the time after that, I actually, um, I focused in on this cottage. And I noticed the last time what, that I painted this cottage, there was a, a toy plastic doll in the window. And I, I felt it was quite evocative because you know, this island had been depopulated. And in a way, it was like a little um, sort of symbol of of lives that have gone, children that aren't here anymore. And even though this has been, um, uh, it has been actually restored as a holiday cottage, there was something quite poignant about the abandoned, sad-looking plastic doll in the window. So today, when I was looking around, I realised that, that I'd quite like to revisit this particular window that I had painted before. And it was a way of putting myself into it because I could see my own reflection in the window. And it, it's quite ambiguous the way I've painted it because you, when you look at it, you're not sure whether you're looking out of a, a cottage window and somebody's looking in, or is it a reflection in the window? So I quite like that ambiguity about it. It's sort of a... It's, it's putting myself in the picture. It's, it's partly a lot of things I've been sort of feeling for the last few months about, you know, self-isolation, quarantine, being alone. So it's a sort of a ghostly figure on their own. But it's also putting myself into the context of Inishlaken. It's still got a, a way to go. I'm probably going to continue working on this actually for the rest of today, um, despite the light having changed. But I, I kind of want to stick with it because... Uh, we, we hear that the weather isn't going to be so good tomorrow, so I might not be able to come and work in this particular spot. When the first day's work is done and the artists are waiting for the boat to bring them back over to Roundstone, Michael keeps everyone entertained with his concertina and Dorothy Smith reflects that the benefits of coming to Inishlaken Island go beyond finding inspiration for art. I think it gives an opportunity for a real break from your usual routine and what you usually do. And the people are also key. It's a great way of meeting other artists and having conversations. Being an artist can be very isolating and a lot of the same people come back here every year so you can build up really good relationships. 
And I think that's a huge part of the benefit of coming here. When James McIntyre was on Inishlaken Island in 1951, he found inspiration in the scenery, in the buildings, and he also captured the way of life of people who at that time were still living on the island year-round. One day, sitting in the shadow of a large rock, I sketched an islander slowly clipping the wool from the belly of a sheep using a huge pair of scissors. The sheep lay sideways, its feet bound with a piece of rope as its winter overcoat was removed. Once scalped and untethered, it swayed upright and bounded off in leaps. I finished the drawing, turned to a new page, and swiftly brushed in a sketch of the old man puffing his pipe, his head wreathed in smoke. Can I have a likeness of myself when you've done? he asked. Sure you can. Have this one, I said, tearing out the page. Do I look like that? A smile broadened his face as he looked intently at the sketch. The wife will have it hanging over the fireplace in no time at all, he chuckled. I told him I'd be back after dinner and we'd have a go at another one. Where are you going to head then? Well, I'm going to try and find the glacial erratics that I saw last year because I wanted to go back and look at them again and mm -hmm. do some drawings of them and yourself. Uh, I think I'm going to head over to the shipwreck. Okay, see All you later. Right. <laughs> <laughs> see you later, have fun. Yeah. Almost 70 years after James McIntyre's time here, Noah Rose and Selma Makala are taking part in the Inishlaken project for the second time. And both are keen to build on the work they started the year before. Noah heads off to find the shipwreck. It's hard to find it at high tide because it's almost completely covered by the water. And it's, um, I'm not sure exactly, but it's kind of just down this boreen and past the, the deserted houses. Uh, and a bit beyond. It's kind of over and hidden a bit behind some of the big rocky formations. Inishlaken, I think, means that the island of the kind of flat, flaggy rocks, and uh, they're very noticeable up at that end of the island. And I guess they're also quite dangerous for shipping, which is why the, the ship came aground. Um, one of the things I'm very intrigued by is the, the kind of material essence of the island. So we see a lot of stone houses, most of which are ruined or semi-ruined, and there's a quite surprising amount of vegetation. So you see a lot of green and a lot of rock, and then down in the, in the shoreline you see lots of seaweed. And the, the shipwreck is kind of... It's, it's difficult to see what it is almost. It's this kind of mass of of dark, oil, sort of oil-stained wood and covered in seaweed and um, obviously sort of sticking up from the sea in a series of disconnected ribs, um, which is kind of evocative of the, the houses, the way that the, the structure of the houses is there, the gable walls and the chimneys, but the roofs and the windows and all the other things are long gone. So it's that sort of, that sense of the passage of time and how it takes its toll on all the kind of material aspects of the island. That's one of the things I find really intriguing. Before he gets as far as the main body of the shipwreck, Noah spots some twisted pieces of aluminium from the ship's cabin. And where some of us might see litter, his artist's eye sees something quite different. 
it's really quite beautiful in quite a sad and poignant way. Um, the aluminium is a fantastic material, pale grey uh, oxidised surface on this kind of mangled, twisted accumulation of shards of metal which are very sculptural in themselves. I mean, the whole thing just looks like a sculptural object. Um, and I'd, I'd love to just try doing something with this, just to rearrange it, not into any kind of permanent monument or memorial or anything, but just to, to see what could become of it, what, how it could be rethought and how it could take some different shape and perhaps tell a different story. I might well be coming back to that, but first of all, I'm going to go and find the other bit of the, of the ship. As Noah heads further up the shoreline, Selma finds herself a vantage point in a field not far from the schoolhouse. What I've been doing now, really quick sketches, and this one's of a glacial erratic, and I, I just... I just sometimes think, God, you know, that stone could have been left 10,000 years ago when the glaciers left, and that's 10,000 years' worth of people looking at it. I don't know, it's just the senses of time here that I just get intrigued about. I think in the act of painting and drawing in location, it just gets my thinking in line with the place. And perhaps something will de develop in the studio afterwards, or perhaps it won't, but it's just... I suppose drawing for me is a way of connecting to a place. So I'm out on one of the levels of flat, flaggy rock that give the island its name, out on the southeastern shore, looking out, out to sea. And uh, about 100 metres in front of me is the, where the, the rocks tumble into this kind of great jumble of jagged, twisted shapes. There's another jagged, twisted shape sticking out of the water, and that's the remains of the, of the boat. It's kind of half submerged by water because the tide is rising. And all around me are the remnants of bits of boat, bits of twisted steel and uh, aluminium. And so it must have broken up and over the intervening years, I think it's about 20 years it's been here, um, successive winter storms have just carried bits of it further and further away from the main wreck. So it's quite incredible, the, the, the force of nature, first of all, that drove the, the, the ship onto the rocks and then has just destroyed it and scattered it all around this side of the island. Now it's just becoming part of the scenery. I'm really just interested in making some studies of it, of the of the remains of the of the structure and how obviously this man-made object have now becoming part of this natural environment. Um, and I'm I'm a sculptor primarily, and I'm interested in the sculptural form of objects and how they sit in the landscape and how how we can really consider lots of different objects as sculptural forms in the landscape. So I'm going to, primarily I'm going to make a, a series of uh, sketches, I think, in drawing pen and ink and pencil sketches. Um, I'm not planning on doing any sculptural work as such today, although I might, if the fancy takes me, I might rearrange some of those bits of aluminium later. It's incredible, isn't it? At the other end of the island, Selma has also made a discovery. Well, I think this is one of the middens, and the shells are just spilling out across the rocks, but they're really layered, and I just found one covered in charcoal. So I have no idea if that was somebody having their dinner thousands of years ago. 
It's hard to imagine how much time has gone by with this amount of shells. There must be years worth of fishing here, really. I mean, look at this. You've got a mix of um, oysters, limpets and clams, is it? Scallops and uh, that's a bit of bone. Or is it? That's bone, isn't it? It won't be Bronze Age, it'll be Neolithic. Yeah, I think Middlesbrough just people where they just threw off their rubbish, isn't it? Just there's layers and layers of shells over time. And what's interesting now is that because of the great storms we're having, a lot of them are being exposed all along Connemara beaches. This is just one of them. As August ends and September begins, the weather during the week of the 2020 Inishlaken project is mixed. Some days, rain and a heavy swell make it impossible to get over to the island. But on the days when the sun shines, it's glorious. And while some of the artists involved are taking part for just their second or third time, Mick O'Dee is a veteran. I've been coming almost every year with about two or three exceptions. So that means I've been coming about at least 16 times since 2001. It, it took me a long time to hone in on what to paint because Inishlaken is really set within incredibly picturesque surroundings where you have a necklace of mountains at one side and then you have the sea and islands and uh, all those things to look at on the other side. It's almost too big, the landscape is too big and the way that I have managed finally to handle it over the past seven or eight years is to turn my back on it and just look at the sand dunes. It's the only way I can really cope with it. The advantage of working on the, with the sand dunes as well are, are in proximity to them is that you're on the beach. And when the weather is half decent at all, uh, I can just take a break, turn around and jump into the sea and swim. And there's nothing that gives me more pleasure than painting the sea, jumping into the sea, coming back out and painting it again. It feels like full immersion. And I think some of my happiest moments ever swimming have been on that beach on Inishlaken. I'm looking at water, which is cobalt turquoise, and you can hear it lapping, nice, gentle little waves, and you can see way, way out, and it's, the water is crystal clear, and uh, um, yeah, this is the second swim of the day, okay? <laughs> The enthusiasm for the sea is shared by many of the artists, including Barbara Allen. Oh. <laughs> it's just heaven. Absolutely heaven. Yeah. Oh. Last year, I didn't really know what to expect, so I didn't bring an awful lot of equipment, um, so I just concentrated on drawings, which I did bring back 
uh, to my studio and I did produce paintings from them uh, when I had time to reflect on them and, and see which way I wanted to use the drawings. Uh, but this year, um, due to a lockdown, I was experimenting a lot but just because I had the time in my hands. I started painting on scrap wood in the garage and today I've brought little um, wooden postcards, um, six by four inches, and I'm painting seascapes onto them with watercolour paint. I love it. I think it's much nicer than the paper. Um, somehow, you know, th there's already a painting there before you even start because you've got the grain of the wood and it just fits in so perfectly with with the water and the mountains, the landscape you're trying to create. It's um, birch uh, plywood and it's very, very smooth surface and it's just a dream to paint on. Barbara has a personal connection with the artist who was here in 1951 with Gerald Dillon and George Campbell and who wrote the book Three Men on an Island, James McIntyre. When I was in art college, um, I, we were all sent out to a week's um, work practice and um, I was sent to the University of Ulster where James had a job. Um, and um, uh, then later on, when his um, colleague was out on maternity leave, I was invited back to take her place for a couple of months. So I got to know James very, very well in the second time around working with him. And um, he was the one who convinced me that really, what would I do be going looking for a job? Um, and he was always doodling, always designing images and setups for new paintings. All he had in his head were paintings. That's what he was focused on all the time. I didn't know about his time on the island. At least I can't remember him telling me much about it. Um, but um, I, I, I do remember him making reference to Gerard Dillon. Yeah, then and that he, he knew him quite well. It wasn't until the book came out that I really got to know the story. The founder of the Inishlaken project, Rosie McGurran, met James McIntyre in his later years. And I went up and I met him in his house in his studio. He brought me in. He was very kind. And my dad came with me. And my dad wanted to buy all his paintings and he wouldn't sell them to him. And he was like, no, they're for my kids, they're for my kids. And he was just so generous with his time, James and his wife, Mike. And um, a beautiful studio in his, in his garden and a beautiful garden. And just, he, he was so happy to talk about everything and to talk about Inishlaken and his time there in the village. And I think James sort of modestly just couldn't believe the reaction to his book, that it, it just touched, it struck a chord with so many people all over the world. So I always kept him up to date with my goings on in the island. And I remember phoning him from Inishlaken on my mobile. I thought I was great, you know. I said, guess where I am, guess where I am. I would always phone him from Inishlaken. And, he'd be, and he, James wasn't a phone man either. He, he kind of liked to talk to you in person, you know. So he tolerated me and my nonsense. A particular thrill for Rosie was to bring James back to the island for his 80th birthday. James phoned me to see if I would bring him to Inishlaken, which I thought was hysterically funny, you know. I organised for the boat to bring myself and James and his wife, Mike, and her cousins over to the island. And the weather wasn't particularly good. We have lovely photographs of us getting off the boat on the beach, getting lashed by the rain. And we, we got there and we had a wee dander around and we took photographs outside the house that he had stayed in. But unfortunately, the owners weren't there and he couldn't get in 
I'd loved him to, I'd loved for him to have seen it, you know, to have been inside it again, but sure, that just wasn't meant to be. Um, and I suppose it's just hitting 80 and looking back. There must be a well of emotion in that, you know, of, of, of looking at your, your younger self and your life. And it was just so wonderful that he was so supportive of the, the whole idea of, of visual art being made there, continuing to be made there. The time he spent on Inishlaken Island in 1951 marked a key moment in James McIntyre's development as an artist. Previously, I had painted mostly Belfast street scenes, and I had found the straight vertical lines of the buildings a constraint on composition. Now, I had discovered an exciting landscape without a straight line in sight. The Connemara countryside was like a roller coaster sweeping up and down in all directions. It had banished tall chimneys, iron gates, and brick walls for a long time to come. When it was time to leave, I thought I might have at least 200 sketches and watercolours, enough material to keep me painting for months. My earlier drawings of the island showed how inept I had been at capturing the strange and beautiful landscape just outside the cottage door. With hindsight, I now realised I had been overwhelmed, punch drunk even, by the multitude of shapes and patterns before me. I compared the first sketches with my latest work. There was no doubt that I had improved. The watercolours outlined broad shapes and colour masses into a mingling of earth, sky and sea. I was delighted to have my opinion confirmed by an approving Gerard. That's what it's all about, he said. The 2020 Inishlaken project has survived a pandemic being cancelled in June, losing participants who were unable to travel and having restrictions placed on the whole social side of proceedings. But as always, the artists who have taken part have found Inishlaken Island a place of inspiration, of respite and of friendship. We come to the island, we make, we paint, we draw and uh, we celebrate the achievements of our predecessors that have brought us here by doing that to the best of our ability. You do feel very honoured that you're following in the footsteps of three incredible artists. And, you know, for me to actually come here and actually have known one of them in person, I do feel very, very privileged. It's always really difficult leaving here. There's the final boat journey on the final day and you kind of look back at the island and it's just, it's such a beautiful island. You know, the beach and the harbour are what you see when you're leaving. It's always quite poignant leaving. We're at this stage now, we're into 20 years of this and what I'd like to do, what I hope to do, or what I will do in the next year, is to publish my entire story of this and all the exciting, funny and silly things that have happened, plus the serious things and the you know, the importance of the work, the quality of the work that's been made there, and the fact that we're kind of a bridge between the, the past and the present, and, and let's hope we just continue to keep working the way we're working and enjoy that beautiful peace.
The Inishlachan project was presented and produced by Claire Cunningham and featured artists Rosie McGurran, Una Seeley, Michael Doherty, Dorothy Smith, Noah Rose, Salma Makala, Mick O'Dee and Barbara Allen. The reader was Joseph O'Hagan and our thanks to Mike McIntyre for permission to include readings from James McIntyre's book Three Men on an Island. The Inishlachan Project is a Rockfinch production for RTE Lyric FM. Sound supervision was by Tin Pot Productions. And that programme is available to podcast from the RTE Radio Player, the Lyric FM website and from other podcast platforms.